Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and in this episode, we're welcoming back our friend Yasha Monk, who has a new book coming out called The Identity Trap. And for those of you who don't remember, Yasha is a professor of practice of international affairs at John Hopkins University and the founder of the digital magazine Persuasion, one of my favorites. Uh, he also is a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Yasha, welcome back. Thank you so much, Ravi. Yasha, this book was incredible. Uh, and I have to start by saying I was a chemistry major in college. And I, about two years in, finished all my, I was pre-med, so I finished all my requirements. And then I started taking English classes, philosophy classes, and I joined the debate team. And I just was totally dumbfounded as a kid from Staten Island who had a very traditional education by the dominance of, even in classes like English, of ideas of people like Foucault, and you know some of these critical race theory like um, scholars who who you write about in this book, and and the, the narrative and the discourse was so opaque and impenetrable that I honestly I ascribe much of my LSAT score to the fact that I was forced to read impenetrable text <laughs> like this. And then basically, there's there's anything you can give me like a even like a dishwasher repair manual, and I'll be riveted by it at this point after reading all that kind of stuff. So I just want to start by saying this is the best. Uh, history of those ideas that I've ever read. And what's important about this book uh, for our listeners is you trace the history of, of a series of seemingly disconnected ideas, which we'll get through, to the modern day discourse around things like identity politics, things like critical race theory, et cetera. So I just want to start by saying, great job on this book. It's really amazing. Man, thank you. That means so much for coming from you. Well, I'm hoping that now college students will read this instead of having to read all those <laughs> books. But I, I, I promise I the book read. is a lot more pleasant to read <laughs> yes. than some of it. Well, let's take a step back. You start this book with something that that is definitely uh, something we talk about a lot at Lost Debate, which is the concept of affinity groups. We actually once did a skit on the internet about uh, our own workplace, pretending like we were breaking into affinity groups, which for our listeners, affinity groups are groups based on race or other identity characteristics, whether it could be a workplace or a school and it's a, a growing phenomenon in the workplace in schools where people will break out and self-organize or sometimes be forced to organize by racial groups or other groups. Why did you start this book with that anecdote and maybe perhaps talk about the anecdote from Atlanta? Yeah. So, so a few thoughts on this. I mean, one is, you know, this book is really about the new set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation that have become so prominent in our public sphere and many of our institutions over the course of the last decade. Um, I try to describe these ideas even-handedly to really explain where they come from and give a fair reading on them. But ultimately, I am critical of them. I think that they are counterproductive and it's important to see where they go wrong. Now, in many of the criticisms of them, it's tempting to focus on the most extreme forms of people being fired from their jobs or quote-unquote cancelled for reasons that are arbitrary or wrong-headed. And I'm exercised by those stories too. But in all of the examples that I give in the book, I tried very hard to hew to stuff that demonstrates that the stakes here are high, that this is really about how our children are going to be educated and how we're going to rule ourselves, what kind of laws and regulations apply to very important, sometimes life and death issues in our society. Uh, so that's why I started with that story. And what you're talking about is 
a woman called Kyla Posey, who I spoke to in researching for this book. Um, who's an African-American educator in the suburbs of Atlanta who has two children who are of elementary school age. And she requested a particular teacher for one of her daughters. And the principal of her school said, you're allowed to request whatever teacher you want. Um, but when she gave the principal that particular name of the teacher she wanted, the principal kept demurring in weird ways, kept being like, mm, well, isn't there another teacher you might want? And I don't know if that's quite the right thing. And finally, she grew frustrated and said, well, what's going on here? Why won't you let my kid have a teacher that she prefers or that I prefer for her? And finally, the principal came right out with it and said, well, you know, the, the trouble is that's not the black class. Now, that's a shocking story. And you might think that it's a story of, sort of straightforward, uh, old-fashioned racism in the American South. But it turns out that the principal uh, in question here is herself a black woman and that she has imbibed a new progressive ideology uh, that is very fashionable in many pedagogical corners, that basically says what we should aim for in education is to get students to see themselves as racial beings. Uh, one of the most uh, influential nonprofits advising schools on how to revamp the curricula nowadays is called Embrace Race. Uh, and so according to this principle, Kyla Posey's daughter could not have a healthy development if she was in a school that didn't have a lot of, or in a class that didn't have a lot of black kids. Uh, to see herself in the right ways as a person, she had to be around a lot of other black kids, despite the wishes of her mother. And so I think it does show a way in which we've gone beyond a healthy awareness of the injustices that persist in our society, a healthy appreciation of the ways in which people's opportunities and treatment is often mediated in unfair ways by the group into which they're born, to actually trying to encourage people to see themselves primarily as racial beings in ways that I think are going to prove really counterproductive. And you contrast where we are today, and we're going to do some work, listeners, to really lay the foundations of what it, when we say where we are today, what we even mean by that. So stay tuned. We're going to do some work to define that. But you you contrast where we are today with a historical liberalism that was focused on universal truths. And give us that context, because so, I think that's hard for people to understand who don't really swim in the waters of theory. So when you contrast the sort of identity synthesis, as you call it, or identity obsession with a belief in universal truths. Why are those two things uh, contradictory? Well, take as an example the thought of somebody like Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, who of course was himself enslaved in an earlier part of his life, who becomes one of the most important writers and thinkers and orators of the 19th century, um, is invited to give a speech about the 4th of July on a 4th of July celebration. And he calls out the people who invited him to the speech, saying, how am I supposed to celebrate the idea that all men are born equal, the, the fundamental values in which American society is built, when slavery is still going on in the United States? Don't you see your hypocrisy? But Frederick Douglass did not conclude that therefore we should give up on the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. He did not think that the right solution was to say, since we haven't lived up to these values, since we're hypocritical, we should give up on them. He said, no, if you are serious about these values, if you mean this earnestly, then by what right are you 
excluding me and my brethren from the full enjoyment of these ideas and these ideals, right? So, so what universalism is, is to say, in a good society, we would live up to those ideals. That doesn't mean we have to pretend that injustices doesn't exist. That doesn't mean we have to be blind to those kinds of injustices. Frederick Douglass certainly wasn't. But it is saying that uh, those universal values have the right way to fight towards it. That's why Frederick Douglass, by the way, didn't reject free speech. He recognized that people in his time were capable of saying terrible and hurtful and dangerous things. But he also knew that free speech was what allowed abolitionists, even in places where they were incredibly unpopular, to fight for their ideology. And that's why he thought free speech was the dread of tyrants. Yeah, I would say like the most modern example of this is Barack Obama, who, you know, whose campaign animated me to get into politics. You know, his his famous speech to the DNC, which put him on the map, was about, you know, we're not a white America or a black America, we're United States of America. He was fond of quoting MLK with the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, which is we'll get to the optimism about America, the sense of progress, the uh, sense that we are defined not by our differences, but by what we have in common, our shared beliefs and our shared story. Those are all marks of a different kind of liberalism. And what's ironic, Yasha, is, and you chart this really well in the book, Barack Obama, who I would say is the most powerful in every way, I mean it like in a, in a sort of metaphor, a literal way and almost a figurative way too, most powerful sort of you know, believer in the old liberalism coincided with the rise, the sort of ferocious rise of a new kind of liberalism. And that's not a coincidence, I think. So, you know, just, just to frame the entire debate, when people talk about quote-unquote wokeness, the term that I mostly avoid, or about critical race theory, right, there's this sort of absurd, simplistic reading of it on both sides of the political spectrum now, right? So there are people on the right who say, you know, if you believe that America still has elements of racism today, then you're woke, then you're a critical race theorist, and that's bad. And then in response to that, when you listen to MSNBC or a lot of our friends and colleagues who are more on the left, they say, well, all that critical race theory is, all that wokeness is, is wanting to apply a critical lens to America and recognize the role that things like race still play in it. It's just wanting to say the historical truth. That is not what the core advocates of this theory that I'm talking about would have said about their own ideas. They would have been offended by that. We'll get to these figures, but people like Derek Bell said, uh, he's one of the key, key founders of critical race theory, perhaps most influential people, uh, the most influential thinker within the tradition, uh, taught people like Kimberly Crenshaw, was really at the forefront of it. He explicitly said he wants to get rid of the quote-unquote uh, defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. He marked civil rights songs like We Shall Overcome with its false pieties. Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, in her article celebrating the 20th anniversary of critical race theory, says, we've come to have real influence in universities, and that's great, but we're not going to have any influence in the public as a whole because that's dominated by people like Barack Obama. And though we can have a certain kind of appreciation for Barack Obama, ultimately, he is, I quote, fundamentally at odds with the basic tenets of critical race theory. You know what's fascinating to me? I was thinking about this as I was reading your book. In 2020, uh, you may remember this, there was, a, there was a, a revisionism that was dominant on the left about MLK. If you were to quote MLK about, you know, MLK is sort of universalist principles and inclusive rhetoric, and you were not black, you were accused of 
misrepresenting MLK and that he was actually more complicated than that. And I was thinking to myself, 30 years from now, somebody's going to be telling me Barack Obama was actually like <laughs> a believer in identity politics. You know, like I, I feel like this is like a full scale revisionism of figures who are fairly clear in their time. Like you quote MLK repeatedly on this. Like he, he wasn't confused about what he believed. One part of this is that people have collapsed different ways of thinking about this. So there's only two choices left. So either you're like, there's no longer any racism and we can be colorblind from the most absurd, naive sense of thinking that race never plays a role anywhere in society and we should all treat each other equally. And that's what MLK stood for, right? And then the other one is to say, uh, we should give up on the aspiration to have a society in which how we treat each other might become less dependent on the group we're from, in which the opportunities we have might become less dependent on the group we're from. We should give up on the ideal of integration, on the ideal that we dream about the day when our children, as in many ways today they do, naturally play together, naturally uh, go hand in hand. No, no, no. All of that is completely fraudulent, and so we should reject it. So, you know, choose the one or choose the other. Well, I don't want to choose one or the other, and I don't think Martin Luther King believed in one or the other, and I don't think that Barack Obama believed in one or the other. I think they both were very clear-headed, very open-eyed about the role that race plays in our society, uh, were determined to overcome those things, to fight against them, and yet they held on to a vision of a future in which those things would become less important. They realized that we have to live up to our ideals rather than to cynically throw them out of a window. And, and what that fight over the interpretation of MLK does is to refuse that third option. And I think you're right that in 30 years, we're going to have the same debate about Barack Obama and it's going to be just as absurd. Yeah, well, okay, take a step back. So you talk about a, you chart a series of ideas and, and a starting point, I think, for our listeners is probably World War II, where we had this fight against fascism and Nazism. And there were two reactions to simplify things. There were many reactions, but two reactions. One is like the Niebuhr kind of like, we need to emphasize the right universal truths, right? And then there's this other reaction that you chart in the book, which is to question the idea of universal truth and the idea of any top down institutions enforcing or becoming sort of vehicles for those truths. And you start with Foucault. And I want to, as a brief aside, I could tell that you had a lot of fun writing this book because they're like mini biographies that are very helpful done like as you you pepper in. And I think what makes it such a thrilling read is that you you pepper in like some really interesting historical like context for each figure and, and personal context. But let's start with Foucault. Who was he? And why was he an important figure to start with kind of in this intellectual evolution? Yeah, to that last question, you know, a lot of conservative critics of these ideas say it's just a form of cultural Marxism, right? And I was open to that. I'm, I'm trained as an intellectual historian and I hadn't exercised those muscles in a while. And I thought I'll read all the text and I'll figure it out. Perhaps it is cultural Marxism. I don't know. Um, but I think once you do the reading, it's quite clear that, that it's not. You can't get to this set of ideas just by taking Marxist ideology and taking out class and putting in cultural categories like identity. And one of the reasons for that is that when you actually trace the ideas back to their origin, you discover that Michel Foucault is really the most influential figures. Even though what becomes of those ideas is often things that I think would have horrified Foucault, but he would have rejected. He's in some ways much more subtle than the uh, ideology that uh, he ends up helping to bring about. And so as you're saying, his starting point is a rejection of what he calls these grand narratives. 
a rejection of his attempts to make sense of a world with his big structuring account of what drives history and where history is headed. And one of those accounts, of course, is precisely Marxism, right? The idea that proletariat is going to gain class consciousness and fight for a revolution, and then we're going to get socialism, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the other ideology he rejects is liberalism, is the idea that the principles of the French Revolution or the founding principles of the American Republic have uh, helped to recognize certain truths, like the idea that all men are born equal, and therefore led to more humane societies. So the first way in which Foucault influences us until today is a deep skepticism that flows from that about the uh, possibility of objective truth, the uh, validity of universal values, uh, and even basic identity categories uh, in ways that'll have an interesting uh, downstream effect. Foucault himself, in our terms, is, is gay or homosexual, some a man who had sex with men. He rejected that label. He thought that uh, that did violence to was overly simplistic about the variety of sexual experiences people have, and so therefore we shouldn't use those kind of sexual labels. He's almost like a punk intellectual figure if you look at his biography. He's very, very much challenged norms, and you you talk about this sort of the famous debate he had with Chomsky, which I was like, I was I was reading this and trying trying to think to myself, where did I see this before? I think it was featured in Manufacturing Consent, the documentary about Chomsky. I think I'd seen it there, and it was I think it was the first time I even saw Foucault, he's like a very striking figure, like the way he looks. And you you juxtapose like Chomsky, who's a figure of the old left in many ways, who's kind of arguing in favor of a very concrete set of actions and a set of universal truths, who nobody would accuse of being a Barack Obama anything. But he's so reasonable in contrast to Foucault, who who's often hard to follow. But when he is clear, he's like almost radically relativistic. Yeah, so, so, so the second big set of ideas that Foucault comes up with is to sort of rethink how power works, right? We tend to think of power naively sort of going top-down, right? Power is like there's laws and there's cops and, you know, there's a bureaucratic state and that sort of imposes order on society in some kind of way. And Foucault says, well, that's part of it. But really the most important part of political power is discourse, is the, the categories, the concepts we use, the ways we think about the world and, and the way in which that constrains what we can do in the world. So this uh, podcast is an exercise of power in that kind of discursive way, right? And so therefore, Foucault becomes very skeptical about the ability to make progress. He thinks we think we treat people with mental illnesses more humanely today. No, we just treat them differently. We think we're no longer as cruel in our punishment system as when people were drawn and quartered and publicly hanged. No, we, we punish better, uh, more effectively perhaps today, but not any more humanely than we did in the past. There's no real progress. And so when Foucault and uh, Chomsky meet, Chomsky, as you're saying, is an enlightenment rationalist, one who is, in my mind, far too skeptical about liberal democracy, but who has an account of human nature and an account of how our current social reality is constraining human nature and therefore a set of ideas about how what he calls anarcho-syndicalism would allow us to live up to our true nature in a more straightforward way. Foucault listens to this politely and says, well, it's all very interesting, and I'm sure that anarcho-syndicalism would be just lovely, but you know what? We don't really know that this wouldn't be a disaster. You know, once we try to put this in place, it could be really terrible. We don't even know what human nature really is. And in the end, one form of discourse is really constraining. When you fight against it, perhaps you have this brief moment of freedom, but then it recoalesces in a new way, and it ends up being just as constraining 
as the thing before. And Chomsky was really shocked by that. I had him on my podcast on The Good Fight something like a year and a half ago on the 50th anniversary, pretty much, of his debate with Foucault. And he still sounded just shaken, <laughs> saying, you know, <laughs> Foucault is the most amoral, not immoral, but amoral man I've ever met. Well, uh, this is where the postmodernism, one thing I want to come back to at the end of this conversation is how the, this, a lot of the traditions that you talk about have influenced the American far right as well, whether they acknowledge it or not. Like the the relativism, the sense of amorality, the sort of questioning of any progress, the distrust of liberal democracy. I mean, these are starting to like, well, okay, we're starting to see echoes of these two things. And whereas I'd say the right is a little bit more nihilistic and the, the left is a little bit more relativistic. It's kind of, if I'm keeping score at home, but let's, let, let's come back to that. Cause I, as we go through these, I was thinking about each one of these uh, strategic essentialism, which we'll get to. Uh, so you talk about Foucault, and you and you mention in each of these categories where you think the, these thinkers and and to place Foucault in a time period, right? Seventies, right? Roughly, yeah, sixties, seventies. Yeah. He passes away in the early eighties. And you point out that although he is super influential in the modern movement, he was distrustful of identity labels, uh, among other things. So he probably wouldn't love where we are today. Yeah, uh, that's one of the reasons. I think there's, there's, there's other reasons. What he most fears is the panopticon, this prison where prisoners never know whether they're being watched or not. And so sometimes they might be punished, but really they obey in an act of anticipatory obedience. Right. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Sounds like Twitter, right? Yeah. So, so I think there's <laughs> yeah, all he... kinds of reasons why Foucault would be skeptical of this. But yeah, so the next series of thinkers, and it's really these interesting schools. I enjoyed doing this reading. I, I, I enjoyed learning about these thinkers is post-colonialists like uh, Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak. And they're trying to think through, all right, how do we build up these newly independent nations or these nations that are struggling for independence? Um, what kind of ideology should they adopt? Uh, they're understandably mistrustful of some of Western ideas that help to justify colonialism. And so Said says, look, I'm going to use this critique of discourses that Foucault uh, really champions. And I'm going to show how ideas that people in the West had about the so-called Orient, about uh, various countries in, uh, in the East, perpetuated their rule, saying, you know, they're too immature to be able to rule themselves, they're culturally inferior, that's why we have to rule for them. Right? He says, I don't just want to describe the world. Here, Said is sort of also butting up against the quietism, uh, the relativism of Foucault. He says, no, we want to actually empower them to go be self-governing nations, to to, to, to revert those historic valuations in such a way that they can stand up with a head tall. And so what that inaugurates is a sort of form of politicized discourse analysis that thinks of challenging spirating discourses as a key tool of political power. And that becomes a really influential part of how we think about politics, especially in most progressive spaces today. What is it to do politics um, in a feminist vein? Well, it might be de defending the abortion rights and so on, but a lot of it is celebrating or critiquing the Barbie movie, problematizing the kind of ways in which we talk in society, right? That is what it is to do politics for a lot of young people. That really comes out of Said and, and his interpreters. And then the second point is that you have somebody like Spivak, who grew up in Kolkata, in Bengal, in India, who makes her name as a translator and interpreter of uh, key postmodernists and post-structuralists, so deeply influenced by uh, people who are broadly speaking in the same tradition as Foucault, and who is 
therefore buying their critique of essentialist accounts of identity, who, like Foucault, believes that, you know, there's not really such a thing as a homosexual or as a black person or as a woman. Um, you know, these are labels that are overly simplifying. At a philosophical level, we should be skeptical that these uh, groups pick out something essential about the people who are members of a group. But whereas Foucault says, therefore, people need to speak for themselves, I'm not going to speak for the proletariat in the way that my Marxist sort of acquaintances do, right? People need to speak for themselves. Uh, Spivak says, well, that might be true of a worker in Paris who's educated, who's gone to school, who's literate, who has all kinds of resources. What about the people in the streets of Kolkata who may not have been able to go to school, who may not be literate, who have much lower social standing? Somebody needs to speak for what you call the subaltern, the most oppressed people in the third world. And if we want to speak for them, then we need identity categories for that to be feasible. And so perhaps for strategic purposes, we have to act as though this essentialist account of identity were right. Even for superficially, it seems to be wrong. For practical political purposes, we kind of have to act as though it were right. We're going to embrace what you call a form of strategic essentialism. <laughs> One aside here is, you know, when we talk about the essentialism of today and, and where you started the book, which is around affinity groups, we've reached this weird point as a society, because I was thinking about Spivak, is that how you say it? Yes. Yeah. It, was, it was actually such a clear explanation of what was happening. Like, I know it's a philosophy, but it, it also was a like a fairly astute reading of what was actually happening at the time. And and I'm trying to think about where we are today, which is we are in this world where in certain corners, especially corners that you and I spend a lot of time in, there's an obsession with race and a, and a grouping by race. But at the same time, to actually describe racial groups is to be in very dangerous terrain, to be like, all right, I am going to say what it means to be an X category and try to say what that is, is to invite full-blown pushback you know, dare I say cancellation, unless you are part of that group and what it even means to be part of that group is often in dispute. So for example, if I made fun of or even described what Indian people are, I'm probably on safer ground than you, but am I really on safe ground? I don't know. So, the, so to summarize, we're in this weird place where there's an obsession over racial categories, but to even engage with what those categories mean is, is to be on very dangerous ground. Yeah, and it's it's basically the way it's used in practice, and I'm sure every listener has experienced this in one way or another. So, you know, you go to a progressive activist group and you ask them about race. Well, race is a social construct, right? It's fake. There's no real underlying reality to race. And broadly speaking, I agree with that, right? It was not a coherent biological concept of race. But I mean, having gotten that out of the way, we can say, all right, but it is so fundamentally shaping of society and you know, your deepest identity is as an Asian American and my deep, deepest identity is as a white American, even if I think neither you nor I would self-describe in those ways. And, and, and that really is how the world works, right? So there's this kind of weird lip service being paid to the fact these essentialist ideas are wrong. And then uh, this sort of doubling down on it for the purposes of politics is all that is left. And Spivak herself came to uh, say the same thing, actually. She ended up lamenting that uh, her concept basically just became the union ticket for essentialism. But what it means to be critical about it at the same time as using it went out of a window. And she worried about the ways in which people like Modi ended up doubling down on, on identity. People who sell tea in the streets of uh, India are called tea wallers. 
Spivak uh, started to complain later in her life about the identity wallace at American University. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, Saeed himself also kind of, you know, in a way turned on some of his sort of intellectual roots. Like he, you, you describe how he felt like the, the world of theory, which is like the sort of world that Foucault was a part of and, and many of his inspirations, they became too self-referential and obscure to outsiders, which, you know, count me among them. When I was in college, I, I could not, and I was, a, you know, a fairly educated person. Like if you're talking about the downtrodden, if you're talking about the poor and the oppressed, but you're using increasingly obscure self-referential language, it, it, it kind of defeats the purpose. And credit to Saeed that he pointed that out, you know, and credit to both of them in the sense that some of these people are, they're, they're stronger on the is than the ought, if that makes any sense. Hmm. Like the Orientalism was a fair critique in many ways of the way people were describing non-Western societies. You know, Spivak was describing the way that sort of race was packaged in many ways. I think the question became, well, was there a solution to it sound? Uh, and, the, and, you know, the, the people they inspired, were they, you know, had it taking us in a good direction? I think it's a different story. No, I think that's right. And yeah, I mean, Saeed has a, has a nice line where he says, uh, marginality is not, in my opinion, to be gloried in. It is to be brought to an end so that more, not fewer people can enjoy the benefits of what has for centuries been denied the victims of race, class, and gender. That's a line that I would get on board with. But, but I think, uh, you know, here's where we start to get to critical race theory. And, and that really is rejecting what Saeed just said in a very fundamental way. You know, I think I mentioned briefly Derek Bell, really one of the founding figures of this idea um, fought for integration uh, in the American South in the 1960s and many lawsuits in a heroic way, but then starts to basically buy the critique that segregationist senators had made of a civil rights movement and civil rights law, saying, well, perhaps when I was a civil rights lawyer, I wasn't really arguing for the interests of my clients. I was just imposing this ideology on desegregation. A lot of my clients may have preferred uh, schools that were separate but truly equal. And so perhaps we should be more open to uh, giving up on certain forms of integration. Perhaps we should move beyond the civil rights movement in those ways. Um, so he starts to think of Brown versus Board of Education as being owed mostly to the self-interest of whites rather than as being real historical progress. Um, and it's something that perhaps in retrospect, was a mistake. So this is a very radical conclusion, which, as I'm saying, goes way beyond, um, you know, we just want to appreciate the role that race plays in our society and starts to found this deep skepticism towards forms of universalism that shape so many of uh, these progressive circles today. Yeah, and it's it's almost like from a historical practice perspective interesting as well because it is it is of a school of find the most cynical explanation for uh, a, a pivot point in our history and you know kind of um generalize from that so a good example is what you know the debate around nicole hannah jones in the 1619 project right which is to take some you know in my opinion in often cases accurate examples from the revolutionary period of runaway slaves uh, or freed slaves joining 
the British cause and extrapolating from that to say like the war was about, you know, slavery or something. I don't want to you know, mischaracterize her view, but like these types of views to be like, oh, like there were some bad motives, which I have no doubt that in the Brown versus Board era, there were people who were self-interested, white people who were interested about white things. Um, but there's also can't be doubted that there were some people who generally had a moral belief that we actually could have an equal society and that would help black children, right? <laughs> like that those two things can coexist. Well, look, fundamentally, every society likes to flatter itself and likes to say that we have grand principles when the reality of it is often less grand. That's always been the case. Like in, the Holocaust is a good example, right? Like the American role in World War II, right? And what animated it has been a subject of debate ever since, right? Right, or even a divine rights monarchy, right? Claiming that this is about the divine order when really it's just about, you know, perpetuating your power or whatever. So it's fine to be a little bit skeptical, a little bit cynical about the exercise of power. I think that's fine. And it's of course true that America has often failed to live up to its principles in the most horrendous ways, as obviously was the case of chattel slavery. The fundamental question intellectually is, did these values help us to move in a better direction? Have we made progress and are these values part of what allowed us to make progress? Or did they actually uh, uh, help to pull the wool over our eyes in such a way that they perpetuated racial and other forms of discrimination? Derek Bell and the tradition that he inaugurated is on the latter side of that argument. They are saying, no, these things, the purpose of these values, of these universal ideals, is just to blind our eyes to what's going on and to allow the powerful to continue to do their terrible things. And therefore, we have made no progress. Bell, in the early 2000s, um, before he passed away, said America was as unjust, as racist in 2000 as it was in 1950 or 1850. Whereas people like Frederick Douglass and MLK and Barack Obama said, there have always been deep injustices in our history. But we've been able to make progress precisely because of a heroic insistence of activists to say, by what right are you excluding us from those principles? If you mean those principles, you've got to live up to them. Perhaps you won't live up to them fully. And perhaps the progress we'll make will only be piecemeal. But as a result, America in 2000 or in 2023 is a profoundly different society to what it was 100 years ago. Yeah, and you point out that this is this is disempowering to the people who've done all the work, you know, like I think, you know, the people who've struggled, the people who've been killed, the people who've been imprisoned to make the progress that we see today, like to just dismiss it, you know, is, is deeply disrespectful right. to them. No, no, I mean, it's I, offensive to say that America today is, is not less racist than it was a hundred years ago. Not offensive because um, it's, it's offensive to ask good Americans living today, whatever right. we can, we can self-criticize. No, it's offensive to the people who suffered from Jim Crow, the people who 200 years ago suffered from slavery. It is absurd to say that, that the country today is not better than it was then, um, and it's, it's disrespectful to their memory. Yeah, and it's, it's funny, there are offshoots of this today. You know, as I was a school principal at a charter school network, and the sort of postmodern critiques of education reform fall into this vein, which is they have they have a subtle way of of demotivating the people doing work, which is to be like, look, you could point to results, you could say kids are learning more than they ever did before, you could point to progress, but they will they will kind of log these sort of postmodern critiques, uh, very much schooled in the in, in the ideas that you describe in this book, to be like, 
to to almost dismiss the progress you're making because the very idea of progress is called into question and how an objective truth and it it really has an effect on the people doing the work if you don't fight back hard against it because it, you have to believe that progress is possible in order to motivate people to serve and do very hard things uh, and this has been a debate i've been having in education circles for over a decade yeah and this is one of the ways i think in which in the end, that level of cynicism is going to help uh, a different set of cynics. Um, but it's a little bit cryptic. What I mean by this is that if you're saying our country is deeply rotten and there's nothing we can do to really improve it, we would have to rip up the constitution and start from scratch. And it's the fault of everybody who's in any way a member of any privileged or majority group. And when you have other people in society, like Donald Trump, saying, you know what the problem is? It's these minorities and these malcontents and these leftists, and I'm going to stand up for our country and make it great again. Well, which choice do you think most people are going to make? And so one of the reasons, uh, you know, I, 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 um, as you know, a lot of my work has been on the, on the threat of populism in our politics and, and the way in which our democracy is genuinely in crisis. And so sometimes people ask me, have I changed my mind by now writing about this other set of issues? No. I think that the victory of Trump in 2016 is one of the things that allowed this ideology to take hold in so many mainstream institutions because suddenly it became taboo to criticize any left-leaning idea because it might sound as though you're running interference for Trump. But conversely, I think it's the dominance that many of these ideas have and the demotivating effect that they have, um, often the effect that they have on people to stop trusting in experts and elites, to feel like uh, uh, they don't have their back. That helps to explain why in polls Donald Trump is running even with Joe Biden in, you know, polls for 2024, despite all of the things that Trump has done terribly in the, in the last year. So, so, so what I'm calling the identity trap and far-right populism have important ideological differences, but, but politically, electorally, one is the yin to the other's yang. Well, you know, to take the metaphor fully that you start with, in a world where you're creating affinity groups, we're left with the all-white affinity group. We know what that is in our politics, right? It's like you have to account for the fact that if you're separating people by race, the inevitable reason, there are a couple, first of all, there are questions about people like me who are biracial, which you point out in the book, leaves us with nowhere to go. But then you have other groups, which you're basically saying, if we're going to emphasize race, then, well, what are we going to do with you? Like white people, right? And you can't control the way that they see race. Yes, like if you're in, you know, Wokistan, you could say, all right, you know, self-organize and, and feel bad about your whiteness, but that's, you can't control that conversation, right? You have to give people a story like Obama did. Now it doesn't have to be Obama's story, but you have to give people a story where they're a hero in the story too. Uh, otherwise they're gonna become the villain, you know? This is what drives me fundamentally nuts about this. Um, so originally I, I don't think it's particularly uh, productive to split people into these different racial groups, especially when it's not self-chosen, right? Um, uh, when a friend of mine was just telling me, arriving at, at first day of college, and uh, you're telling people, hey, if you're black, you have to go over there. And even if you don't think that's your most important identity, that's what you're being told in that kind of moment. That's part of the reason why I think that these ideas aren't just a political trap, but will ultimately make us make many mistakes of public policy and empower the far right, but also a personal trap. I think when you tell people that the way to really find recognition in society is to think of yourself primarily as 
uh, product of the intersection of these identities, you're going to make people a false promise because to really feel seen, we also need to be seen in our individuality in the ways in which we're not identical to other people who happen to share the same identity characteristics. But the most extreme version of this is then what you do with a dominant group, right? So we split students up into these different groups. And so now you have a white kids. Well, you could do what, what happened to me when I was in high school in Germany, where you had Catholic or Protestant religion classes. And since I'm Jewish, I didn't fit in either. So it was like me and the two Turkish kids just like <laughs> hanging out. Um, but that doesn't seem fair. You can't tell the white kids just to go to recess while the other kids are being talked at. And so what you end up with is what Bank Street School on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, very influential school because it's a teaching school where we're teaching teachers and giving them practice uh, does, which is you have a white group where you encourage people to embrace their whiteness, to embrace their European ancestry, to refine themselves as racial beings. And the idea is that they will then recognize the white privilege and become great D'Angelo Kennedy-style anti-racist activists Everything I know from history and social science makes me think the opposite is more likely. But, you would, but, but we are capable of identifying with each other across boundaries of race. Race is one powerful way that people can self-organize. But there's lots of other ways that people self-organize, lots of other ways that people can identify. But once you successfully tell kids, the most important thing about you is that you're white, most of them are going to fight for the interests of the in-group and against the interests of a perceived out-group as people have in so many different historical situations. Yeah, a good example of this is the Women's March, where my mom, who's a, a white woman in Staten Island who has voted Democrat her whole life, who married an Indian man against the wishes of her father, who didn't talk to her for years for it, and has worked two jobs to help her brown children succeed, was you know basically hearing rhetoric about how white women were responsible for Trump. And if you're sitting in that audience and you're looking around, you're going to look for the other white people subconsciously at that point, because you're made to feel very uncomfortable for it. And then at that point, that starts something. Now, my mom is not susceptible, like she's secure enough in her place. But, you know, you, you got to be careful when you talk like that. We did we did miss one person that you um, sort of intellectual that was the kind of final intellectual who I think looms large today, which is Kimberly Crenshaw. Do you want to talk a little bit about the sort of defining ideas that she outlined and gave life to it and kind of where those are today. Yeah, so 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 in a way, the last step of this is Crenshaw's ideas. She coins the term of intersectionality that I'm sure everybody has heard at this point. It's become a very popular term. What she meant by it originally was quite straightforward. It's what in social sciences you might uh, think of as an interaction effect. An interaction effect simply means that you know, if I go out and I don't have an umbrella and it doesn't rain, I don't get wet. If I go out and it rains and I have an umbrella, I don't get wet either. If I go out and it rains and I don't have an umbrella, right, if these two conditions are present at the same time, uh, I do get drenched. Uh, so, you know, these two causal factors being present at the same time is a very different outcome than just one of them. And what Crenshaw pointed out by looking, for example, at a General Motors factory in Michigan is that, uh, you know, in that factory, uh, white women uh, were not being discriminated against very badly and black men were not being discriminated against very badly, but black women were being discriminated against in those ways. And they couldn't get a legal remedy because when they had a lawsuit, a judge said, well, women are protected characteristic according to civil rights legislation, but women are being treated fine. And black people are protected characteristics, but black men are being treated fine. So nothing for you to do. And she said, no, hang on a second. 
the kind of disadvantage you might suffer as a black woman is more than just the arithmetic sum of a disadvantage suffered by black men on one side and white women on the other side. And that's plausible and, and, and compelling in certain contexts and I think made a real contribution. The way that people then came to understand intersectionality really went beyond that insight. And it started with the idea, uh, also known as standpoint theory, or standpoint epistemology, that if we are different intersections of identity from each other, we really can't understand each other. That what you can understand about the world is really fundamentally driven by the particular set of identities you have. And so therefore, rather than trying to understand what kind of experiences of injustice you may have had and what that tells us about society and what kind of solidarity we should build, what kind of things we should fight for, I should say, I'm never going to understand you. So I'm just going to defer my political judgment to you and do whatever you want. Right? And the other aspect of this is this idea that all of these different forms of oppression and injustice are linked with each other. And therefore, anybody who wants to be a good activist can't just say, hey, I'm focusing on feminism and issues that affect women, and that's, that's my thing. No, you have to fight against all of these different forms of oppression at the same time. That's pushed a lot of activist groups to make statements about all kinds of different things that aren't historically what they're working on. And it requires a higher and higher entry ticket to be an activist in progressive spaces. Even if we agree on feminist issues and we both work for a feminist organization, you also have to agree on Israel-Palestine. You also have to agree on trans issues. You also have to agree on advocacy in the housing space, right? You also have to reject charter schools, right? right. Um, and so uh, that makes it much harder to build coalitions. And just to, just to sort of rewind for a second, you take Foucault's rejection of ideas of neutral uh, truth and universal values. You take um, Said's a form of politicized discourse critique. You take Spivak's embrace of strategic essentialisms. You take Bell's rejection of integration and the, the values of the civil rights movement. And then you take these uh, two interpretations of what intersectionality means, the inability to understand each other and the need to uh, defer to other activist groups and get on board with whatever their demands are. That starts to paint a lot of the culture of contemporary social justice movement. A lot of what we know as quote-unquote wokeness today is a sort of simplistic, popularized, sometimes vulgarized version of those ideas. And so that's kind of where we are today in certain circles. And you, you know, you go through a kind of a contemporary history after what we just laid out, and we've kind of woven it in as we've spoken. Towards the end of the book, you you make a defense of universalism again to say, like, let's let's bring back a sense of universalism. Talk a little bit about that. Like, what, what would that look like today? And are there any modern, high-profile, either political figures or intellectuals that you look to and say, all right, this is, you know, let's go the way of X person, you know, other than Obama, who we've talked about? Well, Obama's a pretty good one. <laughs> the, uh, well, he shows that you can win politically on that message, which I think is Yeah, helpful. and that's just sort of bizarre. You know, when you say universalist, people say, oh, you want to be colorblind, you want to pretend that racial discrimination doesn't exist. Obama isn't colorblind in that way, right? Right. He, he certainly appreciates the role that race plays in our society. He's certainly angry at uh, racist discrimination where it persists, as it does in areas of our life. But he has a vision of a society in which we can emphasize what we have in common, in which 
what group we're born into comes to matter less rather than more because we do the work of understanding each other and fighting against discrimination and building a fairer and more just society. And that, I think, is the right vision. He's also conscious of the history you talked about. Like, if anybody knows anything about Obama, you know, first of all, Derek Bell was dominant in Harvard at the time that Obama was there. Obama has spoken about how he feels about Bell's ideas. Obama himself went through a postmodern period when he was at uh, Occidental College, uh, which is like a, an ironic name for a college in that context, but a whole other conversation. He was at Columbia while Saeed was there. I mean, he is a many, and he is a, he has written about, people have written about him and how he interacted with those theories. People have tried to weaponize those. I, I just paint him as something that he is not, but he is very much, he's not just a political figure. Like in many ways, he's an intellectual figure and has at various points it interacted with these ideas in a pretty deep way. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, so, so yeah, look, I mean, in the book, um, let me give you a brief outline of the book, because you're not going to get to everything, but it's to entice people to... I know, you know I got the, so the, in the weeds on this intellectual history. But that, that's like great. It's just, you but, know. But the first part of the book is telling the story you've just gone through, right? Where do these ideas actually come from? What What is the serious intellectual foundation for them, of people with whom I disagree, but who are smart, interesting thinkers? The second uh, part then says, all right, how do we go in 2010 from these ideas being dominant in certain parts of campus, influential in the academy, but really very marginal in society as a whole? Crenshaw in the early 2010 says, well, it's great that we've built these nice careers and you know have influence in these university departments, but there's no hope of us ever having real influence in society as a whole. Well, over the next 10 years, that turns out to be a big underestimation of her own influence and, and power. You, you do start to see these things uh, you know, be reflected in trainings for Coca-Cola, um, change how organizations like the ACLU think about their historic missions, um, be reflected in the pages of the uh, most important newspapers and magazines, even influence in fundamental ways, public policy, things like who gets relief for a reduction in revenue during the pandemic, or how we roll out life-saving vaccines at the beginning of a pandemic, really fundamental question. So part two explains how did this happen. Part three then looks at the main applications of these ideas to all kinds of areas of our public life today, saying, how should we think about our ability to communicate to each other across boundaries of ethnicity and race and culture? Um, should we put under a general pole of suspicion anything that might be described as cultural appropriation, or in the country should we, as I believe, celebrate forms of mutual cultural influence as one of the hallmarks of what is right, not what is wrong with America? Why do we need laws protecting free speech, but also a broader culture of free speech? And, and, and I make the argument that often the way we think about free speech is not as compelling as it might be. The real reasons for free speech aren't just the good things that flow from having free speech, they're fundamentally the bad things that happen when you don't have free speech. How should we think about progressive separatism in education, which we've talked about a good bit? How should we think about those very sensitive public policies? But then in part four, I say, all right, let's take a step back. We've talked about the origins of these ideas. We've talked about many of the main applications, how they become popularized. Let's boil it down to really the fundamental driving forces of this ideology. Let's do what philosophers call a rational reconstruction that really tries to boil it down to the fundamental beliefs. And I think there's three of those. And they're all deeply inimical to, to liberalism. Um, the first is to say that the fundamental prism for understanding society is to think about it in terms of race, gender, and sexual orientation. 
Robin D'Angelo says at one point that every time a white person interrupts a black person, uh, they're bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. We don't need to know anything more. Are these <laughs> two hostile people and the white person is in a position of power or are they lifelong friends or are they lovers? We don't need to know. You know one is white and one is black and that explains to us what's happening. They're bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Um, by the way, I mean, I think it makes me think that D'Angelo doesn't have uh, non-white friends because part of friendship is that you interrupt each other. Somewhere. I mean, it's always it's almost disrespectful to not interrupt somebody because it's it's almost saying that they can't handle it. Uh, it's like a my turn, your turn type of thing. Whereas like any reading on a familiar and engaging conversation is people constantly interrupt. As a podcaster, I'm always telling people to interrupt each other more because the my turn, your turn style of podcasting is boring. Right and and just for our listeners, we're referencing Robin D'Angelo, uh, whose you know most notable work is White Fragility, which is a international bestseller and a book that way too many people are pushing on way too many other people. But that's a whole other conversation. But it's a, it is a book with a lot of influence, so it's not a marginal book. Yeah. Um. So the second key position is to say, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit. You know, as Bell claims, you know, universal values. Um, neutral rules, they're just a way of perpetuating discrimination. They're never going to have a liberatory potential. And therefore, thirdly, what we need to do is to rip them up and to explicitly make how we treat each other and how the state treats us depend on the kind of groups into which we're born. So what is the response? What can people who don't want to be race blind in a stupid way, who know that there's racism in our society, there's discrimination in our society, uh, but who don't want to throw out the Constitution, who don't want to throw out the Bill of Rights, who think that we want to move towards a society where we're not just defined by what our skin color is. What can they respond? Well, here's, I think, what we should respond. Number one, yes, of course, race, gender, sexual orientation help to structure our experiences in our society in some important ways, and we have to be attuned to that and fight against injustices. But it's not the only prism for understanding society. There's also social class. There's a kind of circumstances of are you friends having a conversation or are you, um, you know, a boss and an employee? Um, there's religion. There's uh, people's personal values, whether they're obeying rules, how they go through life. There's all kinds of other things that we need to think about in understanding reality. We shouldn't be monomaniacal about it. We shouldn't just look at reality through one prism. The second point is the recognition. We've talked about this a little bit. But yes, of course, just having universal values uh, written down somewhere doesn't make our societies just. And for much of history, American society and other democracies have been deeply unjust. The great struggles and fights from activists have profited from the protection of values like free speech. And they were able to make progress in part by making this moral appeal to their fellow citizens to say, by what right are you excluding us, for example, from gay marriage? By what rights are you saying your love matters, my love does not matter. You get the protections of law, I do not get the protection of the law. How can you justify that if all men are created equal? That is what's allowed us to make progress again and again. And therefore, number three, no, we shouldn't give up on those ideals. We shouldn't say because we've never been fully realized, we should rip them up. We should double down on the attempt to live up to those values as best we can. That's how we've made progress in the past, and that's how we're going to continue to make progress. Well, that's a great place to end, Yasha. I feel like this could be a two-parter. Uh, what a wonderful book. It's honestly like, you know, three or four books in one. Um, well done. 
And uh, for our listeners, uh, where can they get this book? Buy it in your favorite independent bookstore, buy it on the publisher's website, buy it on Amazon, buy it wherever you get your books. But let me perhaps just say one last thing, Ravi, if you indulge me. Um, you know, I thought really hard about what I want to accomplish with this book. And, and I want to accomplish two things. One is that more and more people are annoyed by some of these ideas. They see if they're part of a progressive organization, how it's tearing it apart. They see in our politics that it can be counterproductive. And sometimes the arguments against these ideas are not very sophisticated. And sometimes they're knee-jerk. Sometimes they even are in danger of being reactionary. So my first goal in this book is to allow people to argue against them from the moral high ground in a self-confident way because they've really understood these ideas and they've seen some of the most thoughtful, even-handed arguments against them. I think that's going to apply to a lot of the audience. So if that feels like it speaks to you, please buy the book. I hope it's going to help. Yeah, you, you take the, the ideas seriously, you know, which is why in part we spent so much time on the origins of the ideas in this conversation is that you don't breeze past them. You give them credit where you believe they are really onto something. And even when you don't believe they're onto something, you steal man the arguments. You know, like a yeah. good example is, is Crenshaw when you talk about the GM plant or the Ford plant or, or you know, the example from intersectionality. Yeah. And then I also, you know, something we've talked a little bit less about in this conversation, I also really do give the best argument against the best version of, of those I ideas. Um, but the second thing I want to do is, you know, I think a lot of people feel on the fence. And perhaps that's true of some listeners to this. Perhaps it's true of many of the people you might know, of your sister or your brother-in-law or your best friend, who feels the pull of, we want to fight against these injustices, right? Why is it called an identity trap? Because a trap has a lure. Good, smart, thinking people can fall into a trap, right? So a lot of people feel the pull of these ideas, and yet they're also starting to understand that perhaps something about them isn't quite right. Somehow they're not quite helping us to build the kind of society that we want. So that uh, describes you. I hope the book is right for you. And if it describes your sister or your brother-in-law, perhaps the book would make a great present. So you can get the book anywhere you get books, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Well, well done. And go out there, subscribe to Persuasion as well. It is a wonderful publication and in many ways is the antidote to a lot of the forces that you describe. It is it is a, an ongoing conversation about these issues, among others. So thank you very much, Yasha. Thank you, Ravi. 